All right, starting in verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were out were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The word of the Lord. Father, we come to you and we lift up our hands because you, we know that you are worthy, that you are holy, that you are righteous. But Father, we lower our heads because we know that we are not worthy to even look up to heaven because we are sinful. But Father, it is with joy that you call us into your presence. People that are unworthy, but you have sent Christ to die and take the punishment for our sin, who gives us his righteousness, who makes us worthy to come into the throne room of the Almighty God and as, as sons and daughters of the Most High. And because of the work of Christ, we can say, Our Father who art in heaven. Father, we are humbled at the depth of your grace, for your mercy is more. Father, we feel our inadequacies this morning when things don't go the way we expect them, when um, our plans are interrupted. Father, uh, the things this week that um, overwhelmed us, uh, Father, we realize and feel our inadequacies. But Father, we know that your calling for us through the redemptive work of your Son, through the power of your Holy Spirit working through us as weak vessels will glorify yourself in us, in our homes, in our work, in our play, the things that we create with our hands, the people that we serve, the things that we account for. Father, glorify yourself in us. May we be gospel-rich people who realize that we have been forgiven and by the power of the Holy Spirit we can forgive and love our neighbor and with compassion reach our city with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that we pray for the prosperity of our city and we realize for our friends and for our neighbors and our lost family members that they need fellowship with Almighty God. It is only through the treasure of Christ, who he is and what he has accomplished at the cross, that we can have fellowship ultimately with a holy God. And we lift our hands in thanks and praise for what you have done through Christ. And Father, I pray as we open up your word in Mark, the good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that our hearts would overflow with faith, faith and we will trust you 
to trust you with the uncertainties, with the fears, to the worry, that we would trust you with our minds and trust you with our bodies and trust you with our family and our relationships and our jobs and our retirement, that we would seek first your kingdom knowing that you will care for us as you uh, most magnificently care for the lilies of the feed field and for the birds of the air. How much more will you not care for your children? Father, we praise and we magnify your name that is above all names, that every knee shall bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of our Father in heaven. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Today we begin in the book of Mark. And we'll be here for a while. Today is one of those days. Nothing has gone the way I expected. Um, Andrew, where are you? Or Anna? All right, this is what I'm going to do. I really, coming off vacation, you get all kinds of administrative stuff. I spread myself so thin, and I, I, I'm supposed to be reading a book right now. But, okay, let's take a deep breath. Father, I need you this morning. I pray that you would glorify yourself in these imperfect words, Father. We begin the book of Mark. Mark is not just a self-contained story, but it's a, a part of a greater story. It's a, a, a beautiful, wonderful chapter in the story, and actually the biggest story. And I'm going to turn my back. The worst thing pastors can do is turn their back to their congregations, but I can't read those words. I forgot my book, and I'm going to have to read that back there. But the book of Mark is part of a, a larger story, a story that started once upon a time. There lived a man and a woman, and they were the happiest people on the planet. True, they were the only people on the planet, but they were truly, terrifically happy. Their names were Adam and Eve, and God get, made them. He made them in his image, and like little mirrors to reflect God's glory, and like everything else God made, he made them good. It was a wonderful time to be God's children in God's wonderful world. But unfortunately, things didn't stay happy and wonderful for long. On one very bad day, Adam ate from the only tree God had declared off limits. Adam failed. It was a terrible day, the second worst day in the history of the world. A snake had tricked Adam and Eve and told them about a lie about the fruit. He said that they would be like God if they ate it, but actually the opposite was true. When they ate the fruit, they found themselves far away from God. They had disobeyed God's word and believed the lie that the devilish snake, instead of the truth, being near to God and having him draw near to us would be, not be easy any longer. See, God was not happy with Adam and Eve. He wasn't happy with the snake either. God put a curse on the man and the woman and the snake and everything else. He kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden, paradise he had made for them, and it wasn't possible for a people who were so bad to live with a God who was so good. So they had to go. Before they left, God made a promise he promised that the evil serpent, the devil, would, would, not, would always be at war with Eve and her children. Now that doesn't sound like a very nice promise that guys, 
that bad guys and good guys would fight all the time, and who wants to be in a war that never ends? But here's where the good part of the promise comes in. God promised that one of Eve's children would someday, eventually, sooner or later, crush the head of that nasty snake. Nobody knew when or how, but she would have a child to put things right. Now, from the end of that point, from Genesis chapter 3, all the way to where we find ourselves this morning in the book of Mark, generations came and generations go. And they no longer were able to live in the garden, and the sin of the people, just like the sin of Adam and Eve, was passed down from generation to generation, from every man to every woman. And that sin caused... Uh, prevented people from being in fellowship with God. The very thing Isaiah in chapter 59 says, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Today, as we begin the book of Mark, which he entitles in the first sentence, the beginning of the gospel. Or as if you have an NIV, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. This story is a part of a bigger story, the the biggest story, this great story of redemption that God is working to save his people from hopelessness and helplessness of sin. This story of Mark as we spend the next months and, and, and possibly years as we work through this, this story is an illuminating light in the that shines brilliantly in the deep, inky blackness of the night of sin. It is a spark of hope when all hope was lost. As Mike said, 400 years of silence. A spark happened in a field over Bethlehem where the glory of God was declared and an angel claimed to a young woman. It is the spring shower that brings life to a barren desert wilderness. The story of Jesus in the book of Mark is the story how God brings His people back into fellowship with Him. That fellowship that was good and sweet and true in the garden. That once again, that God is working to bring His people back. And as uh, Kevin DeYoung in his book that we read, the God who kicks his own people out of paradise and then does whatever it takes to bring them back again. See, the story of Mark is the story of the snake crusher who has come to rescue his people. He is the fulfillment of every promise. He is the yes and amen of every promise, starting with Eve in Genesis 3.15 and to Abraham. He is the fulfillment of the promises to David and to Isaiah. The book of Mark is the revolution that the snake crusher has come, and his name is Jesus. And that snake crusher is not comfortable. It should, uh, he will strike fear in our hearts as we see he has unlimited power and he has all authority. He has power, as we begin to read through the chapters, he has power to cast out unclean spirits. He has power to heal people with sicknesses and disease. He has power even over the wind and the wave. 
Yesterday morning, Gil and I were talking after the Bible study, and Gil had mentioned the, the power of God in casting out the demon uh, out of the demoniac who had about a hundred demons in him. And I said, imagine that. And he was, uh, Gil was awed by the power of God. And I said, look at, well, how did the people respond? They were fearful. They wanted Jesus to go away. And then the next chapter, the wind and the wave, the, the, the disciples who were expert fishermen are in the, in the boat and they're fearful for their lives. These are men who were, were knee-high to a grasshopper, have grown up in a boat. They were fearful of their life and Jesus calms them with his very voice. And what happens? Instead of relief and thanks, there's fear because Jesus is bigger than they can handle. And it strikes fear and awe in their heart. This is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The question as we study Mark that we must answer is, will I follow Jesus? Will he be Lord of my heart and of my mind and of my body? Will I obey his commandments and submit to his ways? Will I humble myself before his throne or resist him in pride? Ocean Park, as we begin the book of Mark today, you must know that to not, if you do not submit to the Lord Jesus Christ, you will never know him as Savior. The salvation that he brings is not one size fits all, but is granted to only those who deny themselves and take up their cross and follow Jesus. I want you to know as we look at the first eight verses of the book of Mark that only a heart that is humbled by faith and repentance can receive the salvation that Christ brings. Only a heart that is humbled by faith and repentance can bring the salvation, that can receive the salvation that Christ brings. And we do this as we look through this introductory passage that Mark brings us this prologue through. We do this in three ways. One, we trust the promised Savior. Two, we follow the promised way. And three, we prepare for the promised King. We trust the promised Savior. We follow the promised way. And we prepare for the promised King. So we turn our attentions to verse 1. Trust the promised Savior. The very first sentence right out of the chute, Mark tells us what he wants us to believe. He is saying that when you're done with this book, this is what I want you to think. This is what I want you to believe. This is what I want you to trust. And he says that the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And as we look at this promised Savior that Jesus is calling, or Mark is calling us to trust, we see three aspects of that. We see the good news, the anointed one, and the Son of God. Let me ask you this. Have you ever had a story where you've talked to, about somebody, about a, a story they have gone through, an experience they went through, and they're telling you all these dreadful details, and you're like, holy cow, what in the world? And, and you're overwhelmed, and you're shocked, and you're thinking, what, how did you do this? How did you get through this? And then after they tell you all the sordid details, they say, but here's the good news. And what does that do? That good news puts everything into perspective and it changes this story. 
What Mark is doing right now is he's saying, up to this point, you have read through the story of the people of God, and it is a sordid, discouraging, difficult time. The sin and the sorrow far outweigh the good news and the joy. But as you read through the Old Testament, you think that the people of God they don't learn their lesson. They grumble and complain. They are forever to struggle through the muck and mire of sin. And they will forever be banished away from the sweetness and the intimacy of fellowship with God. They grumble. They complain. They refuse to follow God's law or walk in his ways. Every man and every woman does evil and does what is right in their own eyes. As the story goes, people eventually get so wicked that they're indistinguishable from the people, from the, the pagan nations that surround them. And God finally says, as he promised in the beginning, I'm going to send you into exile because you have refused to follow me and search me and love me with your hearts. And as you read through it, the darkness of sin that polluted the land can be overwhelming. And you say, like the faithful remnant said, and the psalmist expressed in Psalm 13, how long, O Lord, Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy get, be exalted over you? And as we see the, the struggle we feel, I believe the snake is going to win. Why is it going like this? And just when it feels like there's no hope, and God has been silent for 400 years, Mark announces the good news of great joy. And he says, Jesus Christ has come, and it's good news. Or as the Greek word says, the gospel. The anointed one has come. And if you continue to see the good news of the anointed one, notice it says uh, concerning or of Jesus Christ. Or you could say, as some translation says, about Jesus Christ. Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's his title. You, when you read the word Christ, you can substitute, like some other translations do, the Hebrew word Messiah. Christ was the Greek word. The Hebrew word is Messiah. And they both express the common thing that Jesus is the anointed one. He is the special one. The one that has been specifically chosen and equipped by God and risen up to accomplish his plan of redemption. Jesus is the snake crusher that was promised to Eve to, to defeat the enemies of God. Jesus is the descendant of Abraham who through him all the nations of the world would be blessed. Jesus is the son of David who would reign forever on the throne. Jesus has been anointed by God to accomplish salvation for the people of God. He is the one that was promised in the garden. He is the one that the men and women who are faithful throughout the generations have searched the scripture to be able to see. Jesus is not a supporting actor. He is the lead part in which the whole story depends. 
just when things couldn't get any worse, Jesus comes. And it's good news. The anointed one has come. And Mark, from the offset, he wants you to recognize this is, Jesus is no ordinary bear. He is no average guy. There is something significant. Now, we all have the uh, the uh, privilege of being able to read the whole story. We've known it. Uh, Miss Carol and Miss Belinda have been teaching the stories of Jesus in Sunday school for umpteen years. And we know how the story ends. But if you can imagine as a first-time reader reading through the gospel for the first time and saying, good news about Jesus, what is this good news? And then it's a, a, a bit disturbing when you see Jesus just calls to these men and they leave their boats. Jesus looks to the demons and the demons flee. Demons, d- Jesus touches the, the, uh, Peter's mother-in-law and her fever goes. Jesus tells the wind and the waves to stop and they stop. There's something terrible about Jesus. There is something fearful about Jesus. And there is something that strikes our heart with holy reverence and awe because Jesus has the authority that nobody before him ever has. The reason is, is not just simply because it's good news that the snake crusher has come, the deliverer has come, the Christ, the Messiah has come, because that last phrase in verse 1, the Son of God. Jesus possesses an exclusive and exalted position before God, for he shares the very nature of God himself. This is the declaration of divinity that bookends the book of Mark. You have the first one that says the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, uh, the Son of God, and then you have as Jesus is dying on the cross, giving his life as a ransom for many, the other bookend of that story. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw in this way and breathed his last, he said this. And the reader is struck by its poignancy and how it has all come back around. Truly, this man was the Son of God. Jesus is not just simply a prophet, though he served the role of a prophet. He is not merely just a good teacher, though he was a very good teacher. And as Ocean Park, as we grapple with the book of Mark, every single one of us has to grapple with the identity of who Jesus is. Is he simply a prophet? Is he a a revolutionary? Is he a religious huckster who has pulled off the greatest con job in the history of the world? Is he just a creative teacher? Or is he the Christ? Is he the Messiah? Is he the promised snake crusher that was given to Eve? Is he the Son of God? of God. You can't get around that question as you read the book of Mark. Mark is forcing you to answer the question, is he the son of God? And if he is, are you going to follow him? Brothers and sisters, friends, visitors, you must decide. Who is Jesus? Amen. Very good. Mark wants you to recognize that Jesus is not just God's chosen, though he is. He's not just the deliverer, but he is God in human flesh. And the question is, why is that so important? And this is one of the questions that in Awana, as we've been going through the catechism, the question is this, and I didn't put the question up. I'm going to read the question. Good thing it didn't come up. 
The question 23 of the New City Catechism, why must the Redeemer be fully God? What does it matter that, God was the son, that Jesus was the Son of God? And this is the question, that because of his divine nature, his obedience and his suffering would be perfect and would be effective. And also that he would be able to bear the righteous anger of God against sin and yet overcome death. You see, if Jesus wasn't God, if he wasn't the Son of God, if he wasn't fully God and fully man, or we tell the children truly God or truly man, he would not be able to bear the weight of sin on his shoulders on his death. It would crush him. But because he is the Son of God, he has all power and all authority and is able to take the weight of the wrath of God on his shoulder. And he's able to hold our lives without being crushed. J.C. Ryle puts it this way, the divinity of Christ is the citadel and the keep of Christianity. Here lies the infinite value of the atoning sacrifice he made on the cross. Here lies the peculiar merit of his atoning death for sinners, that death was not the death of a mere man like ourselves, but one who is overall God blessed forever. We need not wonder that the sufferings of one person were sufficient or were capable or strong propitiation, did it satisfy the, the penalty of the law for, us, uh, uh, for the sin of a world when we remember that he suffered, he was the Son of God. God had written himself into the story, as C.S. Lewis says, because there was no other way to redeem his people from the hopelessness and the emptiness of sin. God himself has come to rescue his people, and his name is Jesus. And as we consider this, we must be cognizant always that only a heart that is humbled by faith and repentance can receive the salvation that Christ brings. Because the heart that is, uh, is trusts the promises of God and follows the promised way. Verses 2 and 3 of Mark chapter 1, it says, uh, our story begins in the wilderness in the barren Judea wilderness where nobody went. It was outside the safety of the city. It was outside the regular norm and the status quo of Jerusalem and the religion that had been uh, over years of neglect and superstition had been covered over the true way of God. And John the Baptist was on the outside. And he was in the wilderness. And people were coming out to him. And he was declaring the way of God. Notice verse 6. His message is bold and his closing is stark contrast with the religious elite in the city. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate honey, locusts and wild honey. Now when we see that, we might think first bat, this guy is a crackpot and he's off his meds. And he, how possibly somebody that's eating bugs and wearing some hairy, itchy thing could possibly be the, the, the prophet of God. He doesn't make any sense. But the reality is he was not blinded by the religious, sac or the, 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 the system that had been created but he stood apart. He was different. He was in the vein of Elijah himself, for he was the promised Elijah that was to come. 
And he was pronouncing, he was announcing the good news of Jesus Christ. Notice what it says. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. See, what I want you to know is when John the Baptist preached, he was, this was not plan B. This was always the plan of God to send the messenger come. And what Mark does is he takes three verses together and he weaves them together to show, and this is really the only time that Mark will do this, is that this is the promise, the fulfillment, the plan of God that always was and always will be. And John is playing his role in making much of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who is the center, who all the scriptures are about and leading to and coming from. And John boldly declares this, that he is the promised messenger sent to prepare the hearts of the people to receive the good news of the anointed Son of God who is coming to lead them in a new exodus. Just like, and you see, as we'll see in the book of Mark, this new exodus that's happened as they are in the wilderness. He is symbolically in the wilderness preparing his way and people are coming out to them and hearing that God is moving and Jesus Christ is coming and he's exalting and saying there is someone who is coming and when he comes, he makes much of Christ and he shifts all the attention away from him to Christ. We see the first phrase from Exodus 23.20. Behold, I send my messenger before my face. Exodus 23.20 is the promise of God that he will send his angel before the people of God into the promised land. He will go before them. Now, John the Baptist is declaring that he is going before Christ and Christ is coming. It continues in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, what Mike read for us this morning, morning, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. God is sending his messenger in Malachi before he promises the judgment. He is declaring judgment is coming. You need to get out of your self-righteousness and your self-love, and you need to follow this plan of redemption, this anointed one, the very Son of God. And then Isaiah 40, the the ultimate of the prophets, Isaiah, the prophet, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. If you were ever to read through the book of Isaiah, um, some scholars who don't believe in the inerrancy of Scripture and the inspiration of Scriptures would say that once you get to the end of Isaiah, somebody else started writing something else. The first part was this, because it's woe and it's judgment and it's, and it's doom, and then all of a sudden you have this amazing, incredible promises of God, and this is where Isaiah chapter 40 comes in that though there is judgment, though there is woe, there is punishment of sin, there is the mercy and grace of God. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. In essence, what Mark is saying is, God will send my messenger, John, ahead of you, Jesus, and who will prepare your way. Jesus Christ is preparing a new exodus pulling us away from the the hopelessness and the wilderness and the barrenness of our sin and bringing us into a new fellowship, into a new promised land. We sing the song, I am bound for the promised land. We're not all moving to Israel when we sing that. 
the promised land of a new garden, a garden that is so much better. It is there because all of the people of God who had trusted the promises of God live in peace and unity, and they live, and God is their God, and he dwells among his people. That is the promised land that we sing of. This is the new exodus that Jesus is leading, and unlike the people who grumbled and complained in the Old Testament, Jesus was faithful. He was faithful when he was tempted. He was faithful when he passed through the waters. He was faithful time and time again. And Jesus is leading a new covenant, and we are new exodus, and we are called to follow him and to follow his nays, and not trying to be creative and, and, and try to be genius and come up with new things, but to follow in the steps of Jesus. I grew up in Connecticut, and I remember when I was a little boy, every once in a while we would have a really big snowstorm, maybe two, three feet. And as I was, I haven't always been 6'4", I was shorter, and when you have a snowsuit and you have big shoes, uh, big boots on, it can be a bit awkward and it's hard to walk. And when you have to step high above the snow, you fall over and you get, everything gets wonky. When you're a little, little boy or a little girl and you have a big burly dad who mom sends out to go uh, uh, plow the, the, the driveway and to go out to the shed or do whatever, what do you do? You follow in the footsteps of your father. You don't create your own new step. You literally step in the footsteps following him. What Jesus is doing here is he is leading us out of the wilderness to the isolation, to the, um, uh, the barrenness of the wilderness of sin where we said, I don't want you, God, in charge. I want to be in charge. I want to do it my way. And it has led us to heartbreak and devastation. And we long for the garden to be back in fellowship with God. What Jesus is doing is the Father has sent the chosen one, the very Son of God, to lead this new exodus, this new and living way that he has brought us back into fellowship with God. And as we learn, we are about to learn the way of Christ. It's not a way of of uh, strength. It's not a way of perseverance. It's not a way of morality. It's a way of sacrificial love. It's a way of meekness. It's the way of self-denial. It's the way of humility. And if you have answered the question, the identity of Jesus is the very Son of God and He is the Savior of the Lord uh, and Lord of my life, the question is, are you prepared to walk in His way? There's a lot of people that are going to meet Jesus along the way and we read through the book of the Mark and they want to follow Jesus. And Jesus says, follow me and do my commandments and, and seek first my kingdom. Ocean Park, are you prepared to follow the way of Jesus? Or you continue to fight the current to make your own way to get lost in the wilderness or will you follow Jesus who's living, leading us into fellowship with the Almighty God? If you say yes, it's because only a humble heart that is humbled by faith and re repentance can receive the salvation that only Christ brings. The heart, that, is, that type of heart trusts the promised Savior. That heart uh, follows the promised way and that heart prepares for the promised King. Notice verse 4. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. 
to be able to repent and follow the way of Jesus and stop wandering and following our old ways and recognize that our sin that said, I don't want God in charge, I'm going to do what is right in my own eyes, that has defiled us and that has led us to heartbreak and uh, misery, that it has broken our bodies and our relationships and our society, that repentance says, I need to be cleansed of that. And that's not to simply to plunge our bodies into the muddy waters of the Jordan River, as we'll see in a moment that Jesus uh, calls in baptism, but to plunge our hearts into humility, beginning with the act of repentance. See, repentance means to change one's mind, to turn away from our, way of sal- from our own personal way of salvation. All of us are seeking our own way of salvation. Now that might be, for some of you, it might be moralism. For some of you, it might be religious effort. Some some of you, it might be simply self-righteousness. I'm better than everybody else, and I'm working hard on that. It may be instant gratification. It may be self-indulgence. It may be vanity and pride and say, I don't need anybody. I did it my way, as Sinatra said. Ocean Park, you will never know the salvation of Christ until you repent of your attempts to save yourself and to fill the void within your heart that only the presence and the fellowship of God can do. What do you this morning need to repent of? Is it moralism? Is it self-righteousness? Is it trying to deny who Jesus is? And then it continues, not only are we called to repentance, but we're called to the confession. Verse 5, and all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were coming out of him, uh, coming out to John, and were being baptized by John in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Ultimately, confession is this, recognizing our inability. Or as the uh, New Testament says, homeo lego means to say the same thing about something that God does. And confession is saying, I am uh, recognizing the bad, calling sin what it is according to the standards and the law of God, and also saying that God is good, that he is righteous, and that he is holy, to say the same thing about that. When we begin with repentance and confession, when we begin to think differently and change our reality and bring ourselves in focus with the gospel, it uh, changes the way that we live. Some of you might remember the old uh, football video, I think it's the 1960s Minnesota Vikings. The defender um, is on the 10-yard line, and they have the team pinned within the 10-yard line, and the running back fumbles, and he picks up the ball, and he is so excited because he's ready to score a touchdown because all there is is green grass in front of him. And the reality is, He needs to go 10 yards that way to score a touchdown. But what does he do? He turns around and he starts running 90 yards that way. And see, because his perspective, his view was clouded by his own judgment and what he thought was right and he thought was correct. And I love the video. He's running down and he's fast and he's just like, man, I'm going to be on TV and everybody's watching. And his teammates have to catch up to him, and what do they do? They have to tackle him because he was all wrong. His perspective and his thinking was all wrong. He needed to repent of the 90 yards trying to score a touchdown in his own end zone and costing his team 
a safety, I guess you'd say, and then change his repent and turn from his wrong thinking, which then change, it, it brings us in alignment with the right action and run towards the correct end zone. Ocean Park, you will never know the salvation until you realize that you need Jesus. And you can't do it on your own. As we sing with the children, I am weak, but he is strong. We uh, lately have been adding confession of sin to our service, and uh, um, Brian Chappell in his book Christ-Centered Worship says this, confession of sin is necessary because it is impossible to know grace if we have no awareness of sin. See, that football player, he thought he was doing great, but he was doing it all wrong. If we go along, I've talked to people like, I had no idea that was a sin, and once it was revealed to me, I repented of that. I changed the way I looked. I said the same thing about it as God did. And I changed the way I, I turned from that and followed Christ. Those in whom the Spirit of God dwells are longing to confess their sin in order to experience the mercy of God. We're going to sing in a moment. Chris will lead us in the song, Lord, I need you. Lord, I come, I confess, bowing here, I find my rest. Without you, I fall apart. You're the one who guides my heart. When sin runs deep, your grace is more. You're the one. Um, where grace is found is where you are. Where you are, Lord, I am free. Holiness is Christ in me. Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour, I need you. My one defense, my righteousness. Oh, Lord, how I need you. The heart that needs Jesus is a heart that realizes that the need for repentance confesses their need of Christ that is fueled by faith and then ultimately humbles themselves to make much of Christ. In verses 6 through 8, it says, John was clothed with camel's hair. He was out in the wilderness and it said he preached saying, After one comes who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. John wasn't mainstream, he wasn't comfortable, and that's the whole point. The message he embodies is that you can't follow Christ and maintain your status quo. Things have to change. And it begins realizing my inability in Christ's ability, my sinfulness in Christ's righteousness. Christ must become the center of our life, and he must be Lord. Following Jesus means that you lay aside your self-exaltation and work for Christ's exaltation. Wednesday night, uh, Jerry led us in um, the devotional uh, New Morning Mercies by Paul David Tripp, and it was this quote, it was a tweet. Here's the bottom line. The Christian life, the church, our faith are not about us. They're about Christ, his plan, his kingdom, and his glory. You cannot, when you see Jesus for who he truly, truly is, go through the book of Mark without realizing the, the incredible reality that you can't make it on your own. You can't have fellowship of the garden and cling to your own self-rule, your own self-righteousness, and your own self-love. You must recalibrate yourself, repent of your own wrong thinking and wrong doing and wrong being, and repent, confess your need, and follow Jesus. And follow his rule, his righteousness, his extend Christ's love and live for his glory. Ocean Park, the question of Mark that we will face today and going forth from here is, will you follow Jesus?
Do you repent of your own attempts to save yourself? Do you confess your need of Jesus? Do you now live to make much of Christ? For only a heart that is humbled by faith and repentance can receive the salvation that Christ brings. After all these downs and not too many ups, we come to a manger in the little town of Bethlehem. And this is where we meet the new Adam, the child of Abraham, the son of David. It's with the stinky shepherds and the singing angels where we see the real deliverer, the real judge, the real conqueror. No one understands it's completely at the time, but when Mary pushes out that baby, God pushed into the world the long-expected prophet, priest, and king. God gave his people a new law, a new temple, and a new sacrifice. Best of all, he gave his people a new beginning, just as he promised. See, of course, things were different than people had expected. The stable with the animals and the scandal with the unmarried Mary and were surprises to most folks. The miracles were remarkable. The teaching was unlike anything they heard before. The bumbling band of hand-picked disciples, and that was curious. <clears throat> But the biggest surprise to everyone was that the chosen one of God was chosen by God to die. It just didn't seem right that the one destined to crush the head of the servant would be crushed himself. So when Jesus the Christ, the son of the living God, died on the cross that Friday afternoon, it seemed a shocking evil beyond belief. And it was. It's the worst thing that has ever happened in the world. But it's also the best thing that has ever happened in the world. Just as we would expect from God and just as God planned it, we broke promises and God keeps it. We run from God and he comes to us. We suffer for sin, so the Savior suffers for us. Our story is the story of God doing what we can't in order to make up for doing what we shouldn't. That Christ suffers for our sin that we might share in his sinlessness. So as the deliverers are born to die and things fall apart, they come together. God kicks his own people out of paradise and then does whatever to bring them back in again. As you may have heard and should definitely tell someone else, the snake crusher who died on the cross didn't stay dead. He couldn't. Death had no claim on him. The devil had no case against him. The sin had no wages for him that he couldn't pay. Just, Jesus just couldn't stay dead, and God wouldn't let him rot in the tomb. So on the third day, God raised him from the dead. A whole bunch of people saw him and ate with him and told their friends that he was really alive. Forty days later, God lifted up into the sky and gave him the seat of honor at his right hand. And you know what the snake crusher did next? Because his work was done, he sat down. And God gave him the name that is above all names, so at the name of Jesus, everybody and everything would start singing and shout and worship. And this is the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And I pray that over the next course of months and weeks, that we would be faithful to have a humble heart of faith and repentance to receive the salvation that only Christ can bring.